Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and it's been a full week. And for some, the prospect of this next week is a bit daunting, and it's so easy to allow those things to distract from the study of the Word this morning. And so clear our minds, put the blinders on, allow us to look at this text It's a familiar story, the prodigal son, and with familiarity can come problems as well. So give us fresh eyes as we look at this very powerful story that the Lord gave in Luke chapter 15. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Luke chapter 15, it's a familiar story, the prodigal son. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and we've stated that this Gentile, the author, Dr. Luke, is writing it to a Gentile to say, how do you come to know this one called Jesus? What does salvation mean? What does it mean to follow the Lord? And he's he's answering several questions as he goes along, and in so doing, as Luke records the life of Christ not in great detail, not every detail, but enough to that he's hammering home the theological truths that he wants to highlight. He, he looks at Jesus as a, a miracle worker, and we've seen many of those. He also looks at Jesus as a great teacher. And one of the greatest devices that Jesus uses are called parables. The parable of the prodigal son is culturally shocking, and I hope this morning we can see that with fresh eyes as we look to this very familiar text. It's emotionally moving, and it's theologically enriching. So let's go to the text. It really is an unfortunate title for the, this parable. It should be called the parable of the gracious father. Then Jesus said to a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. And so he, the father, divided his assets between them. And after a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Wine, women, and fast cars or camels, right? Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country. Implication is that these are Gentiles, and that's only reiterated or strengthened in what we see next. And he sent to the fields to feed pigs. Jews do not raise pigs. (laughs) So we're dealing with Gentiles here. And he was longing to... eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so let's back up. We'll look at this first portion, and in your notes, hopefully you have a set before you. This, this son comes and says, I, I want my share of the estate. According to Deuteronomy, the younger children are, if there's two sons, the oldest gets two-thirds of the estate. So what the younger son is asking for, I want that third that belongs to me. Well, okay, sounds reasonable. He's going off to college, it's expensive. I don't know, you know, what he's asking. And yet, in this culture, that was fingernails across a blackboard. 
No child would ever ask from a parent the estate. According to the Pentateuch, the only time the estate is given out is when the parent has died. And so what is the prodigal son asking? <clears throat> He's saying, Dad, I, I, for you, for me, our relationship, it's done. You're dead to me. I have no relationship with you. I want nothing to do with you. I want my monies and I want to go because I'm tired of being put in a box by you. I want the freedom to live like I want to live. I mean, you, you can fill in the blank, can't you? I love Warren Wiersbe and in his commentary on this passage, he says, we are always heading for trouble whenever we value things more than people, pleasure more than duty, and distant scenes more than the blessings we have right at home. <laughs> so this prodigal son falls into the trap of Luke chapter 12, which we saw take heed and beware of covetousness. Covetousness is a funny bird, isn't it? You can never satisfy her. In fact, the more she consumes, the more she desires. And so here's this young lad who has spit in his father's face, and says, no, I, I want my money, and I'm gone. I'm tired of living under these parameters. You're a fundy-duddy, you're an old, you know, you fill in the blank, whatever, right? I, I want to be out, do my own thing, live my own life. And so he does, as we see in verse 13, and the text tells us he squanders. The term really is to waste. It's where we get the term prodigal. It, it's gone. Uh, that money to burn that he thought he had it disappears. I mean, uh, the way he spends it, we're, we're not told, other than it's a wild lifestyle, but nonetheless, Larry Bequette or Ron Blue or David Ramsey's would be breaking out in a rash. <laughs> you know, he spends the money, think about this, to what? Find acceptance? He spends the money to impress? He spends the money out of the desire for fun and pleasure? And there's nothing left. He's, he's, and, and then a crisis hits. It's kind of like those who borrow and borrow and borrow, and then when a crisis hits, there's nothing to bail them out. And that's what happens with the son. And notice what the text tells us. So he went and worked for one of the citizens. The very thing he wouldn't do for his father, which was to work, he has gone to work. You gotta love it. And one scholar writes, we cannot be saved from our misery if we're not saved from our sin. The freedom that the son wanted from the father became actually that which enslaved him. And it's a sad commentary on this young man's life. And you young people in the room, take heed. Sin promises freedom, the fulfillment of dreams and life. And yet, some of us a little older, maybe a little wiser, can tell you, no, sin brings slavery, shattering of hopes, and ultimately death. All that this world afforded this son thought he had at his fingertips with this large cash in a bag from daddy, and it's gone, and he's left tending pigs. The text tells us, again, that he works for this person in a country, and he's doing what would be dishonorable work for a Jew. 
uh, pigs were considered unclean. Remember Deuteronomy? Bacon was not served in a Jewish home. It's always a bummer when I'm in Israel. Finding bacon is really hard. Uh, you know, uh, I love my bacon. Uh, the Talmud, Jewish writings from the uh, six, 600 AD, which is a commentary on the Jewish law, the oral law, states, cursed is the man who raises swine. So this gives you an idea, cursed, damnation to the one who raises swine. By the way, the rest of the verse goes, and, and uh, the one who teaches his son Greek philosophy. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, who, the, the idea though here in the immediate context is that he should go to, to raising pigs. He knows that is verboten. And so what does it tell us? Daryl Bach in his commentary says, in effect, the son has taken the lowest job possible. The, the one that no Jew would ever desire, he's clearly taking whatever he can get. And so here he is. But if it's not bad enough, notice what the text tells us in verse 16. Not only is he attending pigs, but he can't even eat. What he's feeding them is carob, which is probably, that look like brown beans that grow off the trees. Uh, I've had one. They're bitter. They're, they're not very edible. Uh, some people do eat them. I don't know why, but some people eat asparagus, which I do love, but nonetheless. <laughs> you know, so they're eating these carobs, right? And, and the pigs are. And he would like some of that, which is disgusting. And, and it says, the text tells us, but no one and that's emphatic in the Greek. No one would give him anything. This is for the pigs. It's not for you. <laughs> Sadly, this, this one, you know, we don't look to the creator like this, this prodigal son and, and, and we miss what, what we desire from his creation. It's not even available to us because we've not gone to him. And, and so here you have these carobs, and this is interesting in Jewish writings as well, because it says sweet beans from a carob that it says if an Israelite is reduced to this, then they will repent. The idea is if, if you're given this, it's so low, it's so bad that, that you're gonna come to the Lord. And, and the, such is the case because we see here he seeks to repent. Notice what he says in verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare? How ironic, right? He was the son of this great father, this one who had an estate with servants. The text tells us that. And he says, you know, they even have food. So, and here I am dying from hunger. I will go and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer too worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. That text, the, the term there is key. There are three terms in Greek used for workers. Slave all the way down to hired workers. Slave was the best because you stayed in the home you were cared for a hired worker that was the worst because you were paid whenever there was needed work to be done and that was it you were on your own and what is he saying here at least I could be considered the worst of the worst at least if I could get a little bit of food 
And so he got up and he went to his father. And, but, and, and the music's starting here, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him. And his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son. He kissed him. Uh, some texts have he fell on his neck and literally just embraced him in the hug. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slave, Hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost, but he's found. And so they began to celebrate. In this change in verse 17, you have this soliloquy, and it, it changes the whole account because now we, we go to internal this is what the son is thinking in the midst of this. And literally, it, the text is saying, he came to his senses. It, the prevalent attitude among Jews at the first century would have said, this is exactly what he deserves. Let him falter. And yet we see the father responding differently, don't you? There is an interesting, Vance Havner makes this comment. If they had a social gospel in the days of the prodigal son, someone would have given him a bed and a sandwich and he never would have gone home. <laughs> he didn't need the pigsty painted. He needed a heart change. He needed to come to the Lord. There needed to be change. Uh, I'm not saying we don't give out food, we don't help those in need, but it's a heart issue and that was the case for the prodigal son. And it says in verse 18, he goes at once. He moves immediately to the... And notice what the son says to the father. He, he places himself under the father's discretion. He says, if you could just make me a hired worker, I'll take it. He, he, he lays out no rights. He lays out no claims. This is what you... There, there are no excuses. Well, you know, you were hard on me. You always favored the older son. Mm -mm. He recognizes, the son does, the magnitude of his sin. He confesses that his sin was not only against the Father, did you catch this, but against God Almighty. My sin has gone all the way up the ladder, and he depends solely on the mercy and the grace of the Father. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of repentance? <laughs> and you think about this, here's... Gospel of Luke, stressing what does it mean to be saved? And thus it should not surprise us, the term repentance occurs 17 times in the Gospel of Luke. That is half of the occurrences within the entire New Testament. In fact, there are five stories that Luke records that the other Gospels writers do not, and all five of those stories deal with repentance. That's what Jesus said, what is his mission? To call sinners to repentance. And what is repentance? A change of one's mind. It, it's not merely remorse or regret. That was Judas Iscariot. But repentance involves the will as well as the mind, the emotions. And you see that. What, is the, what does the prodigal son say? I will rise. I will go. I will say. There is a transformation in his entire person. True repentance is the result of accurate understanding of the significance and gravity of sin, coupled with an overwhelming desire for the remission of the sin through the person and work of Christ, and turning from dead works to faith and obedience. 
It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The prodigal son and the father who graciously responds. And, and, and look at the father's response. Look what he does. In verse 20, we're told that the father, what's he do? While he was still a long way, which is emphatic, means the father is watching. And what does the father do? He runs out and meets the son. Not in social culture. That's, that's, a, that's unacceptable in first century culture. You don't do that, dad. That's beneath you. It's uncouth. It's undignified. It wasn't ever done. The son comes to the father. It's a patriarch society. You don't go out. In fact, as the son's coming, according to Deuteronomy, we need to have a stoning because this is the disobedient son. So according to the law, the Mosaic law, what do we do with that boy? We stone him. That sounds harsh. That's the law. And what do you see instead? What does the father do? He breaks all social norms. He disgraces himself to run out and meet the son. That is just like our father, isn't it? Our heavenly father. I, I love Rembrandt. And there's one of those last paintings is the painting of the prodigal son. Uh, and in that painting, if you ever Google, look it up. The father has his arms over the son. One is really strong and muscular. The other one is a little weak. And it, he did it because this represents the motherly role, the caring. And this is the strong fatherly role, bringing the son in. It's just beautiful. And, and all the light of that painting, Rembrandt's a master of light. It goes shining in on the son bringing this restoration. And this is what the father's doing. And notice the father's response. There's two. One is decoration. <laughs> he, he says, bring out a robe. And it's not just any robe. It, it's one of the best. It's a long flowing garment. He says, put a ring on him, which indicates authority. He's now one of the family again. Put on the sandals, a sign of wealth, which tells us what? The son's barefoot. He's, he's reduced to poverty. He might have been wearing, I don't know, Something from DSW, but he doesn't have it now. I don't know, right? And the idea, this decoration, this one who has become destitute is now restored as a son. And the second thing is we see a declaration that's, that's rejoice, that's triumph, that's bring out the fatted calf, which would have been only reserved for special occasions. Meat was abnormal. You didn't have that in a typical meal in Palestine in the first century. He's saying, no, no, we're going to kill the fatted calf. The son he thought he would never see again has been resurrected. <laughs> I know there's some parents here this morning. You have a child. You, you long to see come down that road again. <laughs> Keep praying. Pray that God will move. Keep loving them. In this situation, though, the focus is on the father, not the prodigal son. It's the father's response because what the Lord is stating here, what Jesus is doing through this parable is say, this is what the heavenly father has done for us. We didn't seek him. He came and sought us. Well, you think, what a beautiful story. And yet there's another son and that's seen in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field and he came and approached the house. He heard music and dancing. By the way, notice what he's doing. He's working. These sons might look alike, but they are totally different. <laughs> one is responsible, the other one is irresponsible. 
And he he came and he approached the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what, what's going on here? What gives? I mean, I, I am the master's oldest son. I'm responsible for the estate. What's going on that I didn't know anything about? Why is this? And the slave replied, your brother has returned and your father's killed the fatted calf because he got his son back and it's safe and he's sound. And the older son became angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him. It's present tense. It's ongoing. Come on, come on back, come on back. That's the idea here. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've worked like a slave. <laughs> Catch that? For you. I, I've never disobeyed your commands. Good for you. Yet you never gave me even a goat. And you give him a calf? So that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours comes back and has devoured your assets with prostitutes. Now how did he know that? The text never told us. Interesting. You killed the fatted calf. That's the third time that fatted calf is mentioned in the text. You did this for him? What grace you've extended to him? What about me? The father said to him, son... All that you have, you're always with me, and everything that I have belongs to you. I mean, after all, here he squandered the thirds, so the two thirds that are left, it's all yours. It was appropriate, literally rendered, it is necessary to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, but he is now found. Let's look at the second brother. Interesting, family dynamics here, right? They need a counselor. It's a mess. The, the son who remained faithful, even working, comes to hear this wonderful celebration. And you, you have to wonder, why didn't anyone go get him? Why does he have to hear it secondhand? That's a bummer, right? And, and second of all, as I mentioned, he's daddy's boy. I mean, he's in charge of the estate. You would think someone would have informed him of what's happening. And the irony is, instead of him being on the inside, he's on the outside. And the one who was on the outside is now on the inside. This, this tension that goes on. And notice what the father does. It says, the older son became angry. His father came out. Again, the father is breaking social norms. This, younger, this older son is also a disgrace. Disrespectful. The list goes on. The father should never have gone to pursue him. It's the son who should have come to the father just like the prodigal son. And so you see these, these social cues that are being missed. But notice the elder son's reaction to the father. I, just, I made a list. First of all, he publicly disgraces his dad. To, to force his dad to come outside to talk to him, you know, he's sucking on prune juice, he's, he's upset. But to have dad come out, that's very disrespectful. It should not have happened that way. He should have went and talked to his dad and said, Dad, I don't like this. Instead, again, he forces the father's hand. Secondly, the text tells us, notice the son's response. It says he is angry, verse 28. He's angry with his dad, he's angry with his sibling, jealousy, distrust. I mean, the list goes on. The, the oldest son is not embracing this joy of the party but calling for justice. I mean, after all, it was the youngest son who spit in his daddy's face. 
It was the older son who had to pick up the pieces when the younger son left. It was the older son who had to console daddy when younger son left and hear all the stories about how good Johnny was. I'm like, I'm sick of hearing it. He's the one who left, right? And all of that. And, he said, and now you throw a party for him? Secondly, the older son, or third, disrespects the father by not formally addressing him as dad. Did you catch that? There's, there's no respect here. Well, dad, here is, no, it's missing. It's not missing on the lips of the prodigal son because he says, father, you know, I have sinned. He rehearsed it, then he said it. Furthermore, the son shows great disrespect for his father in, in questioning his integrity and his even-handedness. He says, I, I served you, obey, I was like a slave to you. And, which tells us, by the way, that the oldest son's labor wasn't out of love, but out of duty. There's another problem with the older son. He's complaining about his father's generosity. I get the goat? Really? I mean, in fact, you wouldn't even give me a goat. It's not just that the son has been accepted back, but you have to, the older son, you got to put yourself in his shoes. Uh, are you going to give him back some of the estate? Because now this is all mine, that two-thirds. None of this belongs to him. Or, you know, now i got to share my affections, or my dad's affections. I mean, I was the only child at this point. And now, here comes Johnny again, you know, riding on the white horse. And finally, he disregards, the older son disregards his family connections. Notice what he says to his dad. Don't miss this. He says, he said, I've served you, and yet you never gave me even this. Um, but look at verse 30. But when this son of yours, it's not my brother, <laughs> this son of yours, this louse, who was sleeping with prostitutes, this is the one. And, and so he distanced himself, won't even refer to him, uh, the, the prodigal son, as his brother. Well, the connection should not be missed because parables were made to illustrate a very important part or point. The religious rulers have longed to trap Jesus. They have longed to trip him and, and persecute him. And they've not rejoiced when people have come to repentance or salvation has been brought to their household. And we can give several accounts. And so who does the older brother represent? The Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. They're the ones who claimed they fulfilled the law. They have been the obedient ones and yet refuse to rejoice when healing has been brought. The irony is, the religious rulers have failed to fulfill the law. That is to love the Lord their God with all their heart and love their neighbor as their self. As depicted in the older son, he failed to love his father and he failed to love his brother as himself. See the connection here. It's huge. <laughs> it, it, it's significant. The side note, I point is to be careful harboring ill will towards a brother or sister. It will affect your relationship with your father. First John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, sister, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has been seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And that's the idea here. 
Sadly, the only character that in this story who does not rejoice, the servants rejoice, the prodigal son rejoices, the father rejoices, but not the older son. But do you notice the father's response to this older son? Don't miss this. What does he do? He lashes out. Tells him, well, you haven't been obedient in everything. You know, what's it, what does he say? He first, what does he call him? My child. <laughs> Isn't that great? You may not call me dad. You might show disrespect. But in affection, he says, my child. <laughs> There's no reprimand or unleashing on the older son. In fact, the father recognizes his faithfulness and reiterates that, yeah, I know I gave this, this calf to the younger son, the prodigal one, but you have everything. It's all at your disposal. Don't forget that. And note that the father does tell him this celebration, it's necessary. Why? Because it's a time to rejoice. The gospel is not to be hoarded, but shared. The reception of the gospel, no matter the depths of a person's sin, is to be joyfully acknowledged. And the parable ends, and it's very open-ended, isn't it? You're, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the older son does at this point. You, you don't know what the younger son does with the older son or, or dad. And that's intentional, I think, because it's calling us to respond. What are you going to do? Are you like the prodigal son? Are you like the older son? What are you going to do with this, this heavenly father who loves us dearly? Well, this beautiful story, which has captured artists throughout the centuries, like a Rembrandt or an Albrecht Dürer, leaves us with three very important lessons. First of all, in your notes, by God's grace, his loving care for us uh, is there. And in fact, he should have judged us. You know, there is no book of religion except the Bible that teaches God completely forgives sin. From the book of Hosea 14, I will heal their waywardness, I will love them freely, to Hebrews 10, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That's our Heavenly Father. And think about the forgiveness of God that he so lavishly gives out. His forgiveness is always available and it's immediate. Augustine, the early church father, right? God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he's not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. <laughs> I love it. But he's, he's ready to forgive. His forgiveness covers all sin. There's no sin that's too great for God to forgive. And forgiveness eliminates not only the sin, but the penalty that should come. Again, the prodigal son should have been stoned. The older son, the father could have said, you know what, your disrespect, I'm giving it all the prodigal son, I'm done with you. He doesn't. So it, the, it, what's Romans 8? There, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness from the Lord demands empty hands and a recognition that we are solely dependent on God's mercy. That's what I love about the prodigal son. He is brought to only one position, and that's to look up. There are no other resources he can tap into. There's no one he can call. There's, there's no lifelines left. It's gone, except God. And that's what the Lord desires. 
that we look to him. We bring nothing to the table. Even the older son who thought he had it all together, he brings nothing to the table. And another point about God's forgiveness, we must come to recognition that too, we too are rebellious and undeserving. We need to recognize that forgiveness is granted to others. Why? Because simply it stems again from God's gracious hand. Our sin is a direct affront to God, that which we do that is against God Almighty. We, we've sought to thwart his authority, and the response by some through Scripture like Balaam, Pharaoh, Saul, Judas Iscariot, is that they admitted they had messed up. But it doesn't take it to the next level, which is true repentance, which the prodigal son says. What does the prodigal son say? Not only did I mess up, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God Almighty. That's true repentance. I've read this quote before, but it's so powerful. If our greatest need as people had been information, God would have sent an educator. <laughs> if our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he'd have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior. <laughs> Look at the prodigal son. Look at the father who lavishes love. And this, this leads us to letter B of the notes. The cross serves as the ultimate demonstration of God's grace. All these siblings, again, are vastly different. We mentioned one is self-deprecating, the other one is righteous. The one recognizes his sin, the other recognizes the sin in others. <laughs> and, and yet they have the same DNA. And they may even look alike. But notice the similarities between the two boys. Both were approached by their father, right? Oh, the one understood he needed to see the father, but it's the father who ran out to see him. Both boys refused to come into the house, a place of fellowship and intimacy. The prodigal son early on said, I'm out of here, I'm out of the house. The oldest, I don't, I'm going in there, I'm, not, I'm done. Both boys were disrespectful to their father. Both boys expressed their ill will, displeasures towards their daddy. Both boys believed they were entitled to something, and both boys did nothing to warrant receiving any of this inheritance. And yet, the father, at a huge social disgrace and personal expense, loved them both and extended amazing grace. That's our father. The cross is an ever reminder of what God has done for us. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes by Oswald Chambers. He says, forgiveness is the divine miracle of grace. It cost God the cross of Christ. Christ, before he could forgive sins and remain a holy God, when once you realize all that it costs God to forgive you, I love this next line, you will be held as in a vice, constrained by the love of God. Hmm. That's, that's our father. He's the one who humbled himself by sending his son dying on a cross for us. He didn't have to do that. Just like the father didn't have to welcome back the prodigal son. He's the one who forgave us of our sins. Just like the father who could have had his son stoned. That's our father. That is the one who has graciously lavished 
his mercies and love on us. And finally, the third point, which really dovetails the first, by God's grace, his forgiveness comes with no prerequisites or expectations. Did you notice the younger son, when he's talking, he rehearses what he's gonna say, right, at the pigsty, and then he comes and he, and he, he starts off, Father, I have sinned, in verse 18, against heaven and against you, I'm no longer to be called your son, right? And he goes through that, and then this is what he says in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I'm no longer worthy. He doesn't even finish. He doesn't even finish going through, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you need. The father interrupts and says, party time, right? My son is home. This is what I've longed for. I love it. I, I, I mean, if I hate to say it, I was dad, I'd be like, okay, keep it coming. What else do you need to tell me, right? And what did you do with all that money? Where were you? No. He says, let's rejoice. <laughs> Salvation, which has been extended to us through the Son, was simply, the text tells us, for his good pleasure. J. Vernon McGee tells a great story. It was a prostitute who was dying in the streets of London, homeless. She had a son. The son, she told the son, I need to find a minister. I've hit rock bottom, I'm going to die, I need to get right with God. So she sent out the son and the first church he stumbled upon was a very liberal church. And the son got a hold of the minister and said, my mommy needs help. Well, he said, okay, I'll come. And he arrived and he had a bottle of water and some other things to help her. And she said, no, no, I don't, I don't need any of that. I need to get in. She said, I, I'm an awful sinner and, and I, I wanna get in. <laughs> and the minister didn't know what to do with that. He was, uh, oh yeah, there's that John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. She said, does, does that mean me? Can I, can I believe and accept? And this liberal minister is short-circuiting. He wasn't trained that way in seminary. He didn't know what to do with this. And he said, well, yeah, the text says if you believe, I suppose, then, then you, you get in. <laughs> and she said, I believe. I believe, I embrace, I trust. The smile came over her face. And she says, thank you for getting me in. The minister went back to the church. The secretary said, well, what happened? Did you, did you give her the clothes that we took and, and, and the food and, and the water? He said, mm. He said, tonight I witnessed something I've never seen before. He said, I saw two people get in. And she said, what do you mean two? The boy? The mother? He said, no. She accepted the love of Christ, repented of her sins, and she got in. And I bent my knee, and I'm in as well. God's grace has been extended to those who understand they need it. It's also been extended to those who don't think they need it. And you have this perfect story of two boys. One who understood he has nothing to offer to the Father. And another who thought he had it all together. 
You know, this morning is our custom to have communion. And I don't know about you, but this story is so fitting for a communion service, isn't it? If, you re- if you've not received this, I think we have a few wandering around. Some folks got some baskets. This juice, this, this bread, show unwarranted, unmeasurable grace from the Father. Perhaps this morning you can relate to the prodigal son. You've hit bankruptcy spiritually, emotionally, physically. And the father is saying, come. Come to me. (laughs) Perhaps it's the older son you resonate with. One scholar said, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the older son. Isn't it? It's so easy to to think, oh, I'm not like that. Thank the Lord. And become independent and forget all that we have is from the Father. It's his grace that he, he allows us to call him Abba. So, careful with your spiritual track record. The only person you'll impress is yourself and maybe your mother. (laughs) It leaves you so secure that you're critical of others and you're presumptuous upon the Heavenly Father. (laughs) So we're going to spend some time this morning coming to this communion table. This is designed for those who know the Lord. There's not grace in this. (laughs) It's to remember the amazing grace that's been given. There is a warning that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians. He said, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In fact, he says, that's why some have even died. This is serious. (laughs) Because what it means is, Lord, I'm remembering what you have done and, and and I am saying yes. I'm going to seek to serve you. I want you. I want to remember what you've done for me. So let's spend some time in prayer as we, before we come and take these elements. prodigal son, the gracious father depicts how you have loved us so. Before the foundation of the world the text tells you called us. You're the one who came and died on a cross. How would we have ever restored a relationship with you? And so we thank you. Yet it's also easy to forget that. Those of us who know you 
your son as our savior. We, we, we lose sight of where you brought us. And communion's a beautiful time to say, ah, no, wait a minute. <laughs> Whether we identify with the prodigal son or we identify with the older son, it's your grace that we desperately needed and need, and we thank you. Lord, we love you. We're not always perfect. We struggle loving you with all our heart, our mind, and our soul. Help us to do that. Help us to be appreciative children. Thank you for lavishing your love, rejoicing over us, as Zephaniah states. We just marvel and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Paul understood for many days he, or years he lived as the prodigal son's older brother until he met Jesus on that Damascus road and he said, no, <laughs> I'm the prodigal son. It's interesting, as Paul progresses in his letters, it's not until later in his latter letters he says, I am the worst of sinners. It was the worst of apostles, but as time progressed, he said, no. I see the Lord, I see me, I am the worst of sinners. And, and he leaves this, Paul says, this is what the, the Father left us, just to remember who we are and what God has done. And so the text tells us, says, when he had received from the Lord what was delivered to you, the Lord, on that night when he's betrayed, he, he took the bread. <laughs> this is the least I could do for you. You go, no, 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 no. It's, what do you mean? Because I love you dearly. I'm allowing my, my body to be broken for you. And he says, as you do this, remember the gift I've given you. Same way he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. I'm giving you an inheritance. <laughs> I'm gonna call you my children, allow you to call me father because of what my son did on the cross for you. He shed his blood. As you, as you do this, as you drink it, remember what my son has done for you. Father, thank you. Thank you again for being the father who defied all norms and ran and met us with open arms and allowed us to call you daddy. <laughs>